when you look at the treaties across the country, they were signed uh, under the premise of a nation-to-nation relationship with the Crown at the time, and as well as the First Nations that have signed on to treaty. That relationship was understood to continue as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow. So when we find today then is that a number of First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples are looking for a government that would respond not only to the issues, but also provide uh, a clear pathway in working together so that the issues being addressed are in fact created by and delivered by Indigenous peoples for their own community. Welcome to Ontario Loud, a show about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and today, at long last, we are continuing our series of deep dives into areas of federal policy where we feel that discontent with the Trudeau Liberal government has formed. We want to go beyond the talking points and look at what has gone well, what hasn't gone well, and what more there is to do on some of the government's most important priorities. And we will be diving in today with a discussion on Canada's relationship with Indigenous people. Something I want to acknowledge is way beyond the ability of one half-hour podcast to cover. So our approach is that we're going to pick and choose a few areas of relevance to the federal election and overview them at a high level. And then we're going to begin to cover these issues more in greater depth in future episodes. This is a hugely important topic, as we've talked about the importance of decolonization on this podcast before, but never actually dedicated a whole show to addressing and discussing our shared history of colonialism and racism to the Indigenous people of this country. And so I want to start by acknowledging today that we're recording this podcast on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the New Credit, Anishinaabe, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. The treaties that allow us to live on these territories are still alive and relevant today, but have a problematic colonial history, and that Canadian society has forced Indigenous people over many years across this country to fight for their rights to this very day. And so that continued struggle is where I want to pick up on our topic today, because in 2015, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau promised that his election would be a turning point. We'll have an opportunity to choose a different government, a better government. One that understands that the constitutionally guaranteed rights of Aboriginal peoples in Canada are not an inconvenience, but rather a sacred obligation central to what Canada is as a nation. That our futures are inextricably intertwined. That the Crown must always act honourably and in good faith. And who can forget this moment after the election? I was going to say the mayor, I meant the prime minister. He's going to be looking good for about at least 12 more years. I don't know if they'll let you go beyond that, but he'll do it. We're in good hands, folks. Real good hands. He cares about the people way up north that we were trained our entire lives to ignore trained our entire lives to hear not a word of what's going on up there. But what's going on up there ain't, ain't good. It's maybe worse than it's ever been. So it's not on the improve, and we're going to get it fixed. But we got the guy to do it, to start, to help. So in my time watching Canadian politics, I can't think of a moment where expectations were set higher. So today, to help us pick apart where we've been and where we're going, I'm so excited to welcome Arnold Blackstar to the pod. Arnold is the executive director of the National Indian Brotherhood Trust Fund, 
an organization that allocates funding in accordance with the 2007 Indian Residential Schools Agreement to projects and initiatives that address the longstanding impacts of residential schools in Canada. Previous to this role, Arnold served in the Ontario government as the Director of Indigenous Post-Secondary Education and served in senior leadership positions at Canada World Youth, Musaman First Nation, and a variety of other places. Arnold, welcome to the pod. Thank you for the invitation. We are so thrilled to have you. And uh, I guess to get us kicked off today, I want to go over some of the original uh, liberal promises. Justin Trudeau promised to renew the nation-to-nation relationship, invest in uh, First Nations education, lift funding restrictions for bans, pursue Métis self-governance, improve services, conduct a missing and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry, and enact the recommendations of the TRC. So a lot of stuff. Since then, if you ask his government today, uh, they point to uh, a $2.6 billion investment in First Nations education over five years, in addition to capital and post-secondary funding. They talk about ending 82 boil water advisories, although there are still some to go. Uh, They talk about enactment of a First Nations Languages Act and commissioner and moving forward with the majority of recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, though it's important to note that many of those are sort of in the proposed or in-progress stage as opposed to sort of completed recommendations. Uh, He also appointed upon his election, notably the first Indigenous Minister of Justice in this country's history in Jody Wilson-Raybould, who we will discuss. And so, Arnold, I want to start at a very high level. And like, what do we make of the progress that this government has claimed it has made versus the original promise that was, um, I think, made in the 2015 election? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, As you understand, in the last election in uh, 2015, the current government promised that uh, it would renew a nation-to-nation relationship between uh, First Nations peoples um, and the federal government. That relationship would be built on respect, rights, and commitment to ending the status quo, as it were. Part of the work that uh, I think the current government has done includes things like uh, initiating a rights recognition framework consultation that didn't go too far, given that there was a lot of pushback by uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit around the approach that it took towards right recognition. The other uh, work that uh, this current government has done is the uh, initiation of the Indigenous Languages Act. Uh, That was sort of in the the 11th hour of their term, and it was something that was sought by uh, the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit with a number of adjustments when it went through the Senate stages, although not everyone was happy with it, but at least there was something done on that front. Commitments for funding Indigenous languages uh, has still yet to be uh, set in place, and also the Languages Commissioner under that Act as well still needs to be uh, in set. The biggest disappointment, I think, was under that renewed nation-to-nation relationship was the uh, uh, inability to pass the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Going back in after the election of 2015, uh, you had uh, the then the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and as well as the Minister of, of Indigenous Affairs, uh, arriving at the United Nations uh, at the Permanent Forum of Indigenous Peoples, declaring that Canada would support the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In the following year, in 2017, uh, Minister uh, Carolyn Bennett also arrived again at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous uh, Issues, to declare that uh, Canada had formally lifted all reservations that were put in place by the previous Harper government on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, that in itself set the tone for the expectation that 
the UN declaration would be um, come to law in Canada, but uh, it didn't make it through the Senate process for various reasons. So hold up. Are you wondering what the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is? How about the Indigenous Rights Recognition Framework? It's worth pausing for a moment to ensure that you do, though I warn you that it's no small task and it's going to take a minute. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is exactly what it sounds like. It's a resolution of the General Assembly of the United Nations developed over most of the 20th century actually, but only passed formally in 2007. The Declaration itself has 46 articles that codify important rights for Indigenous people in countries that sign on, like rights to self-determination, rights to protect culture and language, rights to health and security, rights to land, territory, and resources that they traditionally own, including the right to reparations for instances where land was taken without free, prior, and informed consent. Now, this declaration is not legally binding on member states, uh, as most UN declarations aren't. However, UN declarations are often very influential in how countries shape their own laws. Think about how weird it would be if the Canadian Charter of Human Rights was way out of step with what the UN declaration stated. They aren't the same in practice today, of course, but imagine if they were like really, really different. Like Canada's charter said it was okay to discriminate based on sex and gender, notwithstanding the notwithstanding. Well, for Indigenous people in Canada, the policies and laws they have lived with for many years differ substantially from what is in this UN declaration. Think about all the traditional territories that settlers live on in this country. We would suddenly have to, under this declaration, think about how to deal with that. So that maybe is why when this declaration was passed in 2007, Canada voted against it under the Harper government. So when Trudeau was elected in 2015 with the promise of sunny ways, Canadian Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould announced that Canada would formally remove its official objector status. However, were we going to adopt the declaration? Moreover, were we going to take any concrete steps? Were we going to take any concrete steps to adopt its principles into our laws? That is where the rights framework comes in. The rights framework is an attempt in Canadian law and policy to codify what the rights of Indigenous people in this country, in Canada, are. The intention is a way to do this in a way that substantially breaks from the past, which currently holds them in the widely recognized as racist Indian Act. The Trudeau government announced that it would pursue such a framework only last year, and it's been consulting on it ever since. However, what they have been consulting on has not been well received by many of the First Nations involved in the consultations, to say the least. I probably don't have time to go into all of the reasons why this has been the case, but there is some really good scholarship coming out of Ryerson University's Yellowhead Institute that I encourage you to check out. Essentially, there are many that feel that rights recognition, as proposed by the Liberal government, is merely a repackaging of the current system and devolves certain administrative authorities to bans, but avoids crucial issues like land recognition and claims and title. There's so much more to this issue, and I want to get back to Arnold, but it's worth touching on where we are now. The rights recognition framework is still under development. The NDP and Liberals have committed to support Canada's affirmation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People after one of those parties wins the next election. And it's worth noting that there is an NDP private member's bill to do this in the Senate right now. But nothing really has happened. We're still waiting for something to happen. We've had a lot of talk, but the action has been much slower and much more complicated. It's worth knowing, though, that the future of Indigenous rights hangs in the balance in this election, and you should go into the ballot box knowing that. That's enough of me. Back to the interview.
in this election, uh, we've heard a little bit about the UN declaration as some of the projects like the Boil Water Advisories to sort of, I guess, name the most potentially urgent and pressing. Uh, a number of things that uh, the government's messaging is they're they're moving towards these things that they are uh, maybe disappointed with the slow progress of, of of some of them, but that their brand is one that is going to be more progressive than we have been on this issue, and that's why everyone should still vote for Mr. Trudeau, and that's I think what their what their camp would say. I, I've noted that there's a in Veronica's research poll that showed that Indigenous support for uh, the liberals in this election has plummeted uh, from 40 to 21 percent. How are some of those uh, changes resonating? That, that sort of message that we're, we're trying, but progress is slow. How is that message resonating or, or, or playing? Why are sort of people not, what, what sort of sentiments are you hearing? So I think the issues uh, facing Indigenous peoples in Canada today are trying to address some of the issues that are plaguing their own communities. Uh, more often than not, uh, you find First Nations living in, in poverty conditions that exist in, in other uh, developing countries. Um, you also find that large numbers of children currently are in the child welfare systems by province as anywhere up to, uh, you know, 90 percent. Uh, with the recent uh, Canadian human rights decision on the uh, action that was brought by the First Nations Child Care Society, the current government uh, decided to appeal that decision in terms of compensating children that were in the system. Uh, now, that system itself is still broken. You still find uh, a large number of, of children in care. And more recently, uh, you find children uh, who are just born being taken out of the, the delivery room, if you will, and straight into care. That doesn't exist for any other segment of the population in Canada, which raises a number of issues. With the water advisories, there's a significant number of improvements that were made across the country. When, when you look at municipalities compared to First Nations communities, find that if you have a, a water issue in, say, in, in my hometown, North Battleford, would had which had a water crisis. Uh, immediate federal provincial funding was put in place to address uh, a water issue in a city, whereas you find uh, more than 50 communities still living with uh, boil watery issues in the country. So poverty is one thing, and then the effects of poverty, of, of course, is, is a significant piece. So addictions to uh, current uh, uh, meth crisis in communities, uh, gang issues, uh, and, and other issues that are related to addictions as well, with no solid plan for mental health uh, support, changing the way mental health services are delivered to First Nations and Métis Inuit communities, because uh, you find that as well, high incidence of uh, suicide exists among uh, the communities as well. So the priorities, I think, are sort of, uh, you know, identified, but there isn't a real plan to address them by the current government. So when you find a, a drop in the liberal popularity in the current polls with NDP increasing, um, I think the last uh, election uh, debate uh, kind of signifies that there has been a loss of trust with the current uh, liberal government. And there always has been a lack of trust and suspicion with the conservative government and, you know, the idea that the NDP could perhaps uh, address some of the issues in a more meaningful way is perhaps one of the telling things. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And when I hear you sort of walk us through some of those issues, um, you know, I'm reminded of sort of the urgency of some of them. And um, if you don't have working water in your town, like the 56 boil water advisors that still exist in Canada, someone who is professing to have good intentions, it's probably going to be more infuriating than uh, than anything if no one's actually coming to fix the, the water, or at least that's how I would feel in that situation. Do you have any sort of read or insights or or guesses into why this government has been so slow to roll through some of it? You know, I think it, it goes back historically as well. So when you think about uh, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, they've always been considered federal uh, jurisdiction, federal responsibility. Uh, for First Nations, it's, it's even much more than that. When you look at the, 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 the treaties across the country, they were signed uh, under the premise of a nation-to-nation relationship with the Crown at the time, and as well as the First Nations that have signed on to treaty. That relationship was understood to continue as long as the sun shines, the grass grows, and the rivers flow, meaning that uh, in perpetuity that the treaties would remain and that the promises would be fulfilled based on the uh, exchanges that were made at the time. Now, that relationship has uh, turned around quite quickly after, you know, expansion of Canada into where we are today. A number of things have occurred under the Indian Act where First Nations were subject to Indian residential schools um, across the country. The uh, 60s group era as well, where children were forcibly taken out of their communities and adopted uh, elsewhere. Uh, You find uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women over time that have uh, not been taken seriously by governments, but as well as uh, the criminal justice system. And the current uh, report, you know, detailing some of the issues that are systemic. So when we find today then is that a number of First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples are looking for a government that would respond not only to the issues, but also provide uh, a clear pathway in working together so that the issues being addressed are in fact created by and delivered by Indigenous peoples for their own communities. Although it's, you know, we have shared jurisdictions across the, the areas, there is no other uh, better situation where you find Indigenous peoples themselves not only designing the, you know, the solutions to the issues that affect them, but also implementing the, uh, the, the solutions for them as well. Looking back through some of the points where I've seen uh, the tensions and objections from communities really sort of coming forward the loudest. You know, I think about the boil water advisories. I think about approval of certain energy projects over the objections of of First Nations, uh, like the Site C Dam and Coastal Lake Gas Lake Pipeline in BC. Most notably, kicking Jody Wilson Raybould out of caucus and and cabinet. I'm, I'm wondering if there was a turning point where people sort of really started saying to themselves, "You know what? I'm not sure this was going on the track that I thought it was going on." I think uh, there were a number of indicators at the beginning when the uh, when the current government uh, attempted to define the nation-to-nation relationship, particularly around the rights rec- recognition framework. Uh, it was clear that there was no consultation in, in place uh, that would have a meaningful participation by First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in terms of the rights recognition. Uh, the minimum standard set by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is, in fact, free, prior, and informed consent. Those principles were not put in place when uh, moving towards defining what the re- rights recognition framework would look like. Uh, so there was an immediate suspicion from there. 
Um, I think the whole handling of the SLC Lavalin affair also uh, opened, uh, you know, the eyes of indigenous peoples to the fact that the premise was that there was uh, veiled threats being put forward against the then Attorney General on uh, addressing the issue of the SNC-Lavalin case. The initial response by the government was that uh, it done nothing wrong and that, in fact, it was, you know, staffers at the PMO and then at the Privy Council office. But in fact, in the end, there were more senior level involvement throughout the current government denied its role in in that. And then, in fact, the ethics commissioner came out and said that there was ethics breached by the government when it interfered in the role of attorney general. So that, I think, uh, was the turning point, particularly around the hearings that were made by the Justice Committee uh, here in, uh, in Ottawa around the whole issue. The testimony that was given by the attorney general the um, the statements that were made by the former advisor Jerry Butts and uh, as well as the per- former Privy Council on the issue. So in the in the sense, uh, the justification that was brought forward was that they were protecting jobs in Quebec, and that clearly signified that uh, you know the in the promises of the 2015 election was that it was going to be a new government to move away from the status quo. And I think that revealed that the current government itself today uh, has not moved away from the status quo, but in fact is carrying forward the same tactics and approaches that it has had in the past in terms of that party. I want to move on uh, to maybe the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, specifically. By now, most of us have probably heard of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the federal commission tasked with documenting the history and lasting impacts of the Indian residential school system uh, and proposing calls to action that could help Canadians and Indigenous people heal and reconcile. Um, The calls to action range range across all aspects of uh, society, including child welfare, which you talked about, education, language and culture, health and justice. To date, looking at CBC's Beyond 94 project, uh, there are 10 calls that are complete, 21 in progress, and what they've sort of classified as truly underway, 37 as in progress and sort of the planning stage, and, and 26 not started at all. From your perspective, Arnold, where does it seem like we're at in this journey? Nearly every party, including the Conservatives, will come out in this election and say, you know, we're committed to truth and reconciliation as a party. But clearly, there's a consensus that some parties uh, are more for real on this than others. So for a voter trying to figure out who's a politician that's just saying the words and who's a politician that is has truly level of understanding on it, how should a voter go about approaching sort of this issue? I think uh, voters should look at the uh, the truth and reconciliation calls to action as a, a, a continuous and ongoing process. Secondly, that no one government or no one level of government is responsible for the uh, implementation of the uh, recommendations from the TRC. It is, in fact, a collaborative approach. And when you find governments that are more open to and advocate for a collaborative approach to uh, addressing the TRC uh, calls to action, then you find voters more open to the fact that there is uh, a government willing and wanting to change a system that has been built over time that not only uh, took away the rights of uh, Indigenous peoples, but also 
has done serious harm to Indigenous peoples in this country. Uh, some quick examples uh, across the country might be that in this current government, you know, the uh, Indigenous languages legislation that was uh, enacted certainly uh, is at the core of supporting Indigenous peoples revitalizing their own, own cultures and identity, but also the resilience of young people in around languages. Because when you think about, uh, you know, self-esteem, self-confidence, uh, and resilience at the core of your being is your is your own identity. And for Indigenous peoples, that also includes your own language. And with language comes uh, your own traditional practices, knowledge, and and ways of expression. You know that is a way of ensuring young people learn their language. Is also a way of building their own confidence in in, in whatever they are pursuing in education or their work life or their personal life as well. So uh, that's an example. In Ontario here, uh, the previous government uh, enacted uh, the Indigenous Institutes Act. That act recognizes Indigenous peoples having the right to control their own institutions, but also as well uh, to deliver their own uh, education programs at a post-secondary level. There are nine Indigenous Institutes in Ontario that do deliver culturally uh, reflective uh, and uh, ways of, of, of learning uh, in their own communities. So a lot of, you know, First Nations folks in, in Ontario uh, who have to leave their community have a place to go where they can call their own. So I think the, you know, in terms of the TRC, there's still uh, a lot of work to do. And I think it is still ongoing in terms of where we are. Uh, as a community and as well as a country. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because w when you look at that sort of CBC Beyond 94 project, 94 being the, the 94 calls to action themselves, you see, you do kind of see this range of different kinds of government action that's taken place on, on different levels. And uh, the bulk of the, the vast majority of, of those are, are still underway. And there's, yeah, there are multiple levels of government involved. On education, I think it's interesting because I've seen more federal government references to the, the $2.6 billion investment in First Nations education uh, over five years. It, that was sort of supposed to help address some of the funding disparities between provincially run school systems and the, and the uh, Indigenous run school systems. But, you know, as late as sort of 2018, we saw a number of people saying, okay, it's great that investment is there, but we haven't actually seen the funding roll out yet. And what we have seen is only in project funds. And so it's with some of these calls, I find it interesting how there can be a tendency to sort of say, yep, we're addressing that. You know, we've invested this money, tick the box is done. But actually, a lot of the work that's associated with what that call is actually sort of speaking to is, is not there. Yeah, that is that is a very good observation. That is, in fact, uh, correct. So when you think about the K-12 system, the issue initially was that uh, First Nations children uh, receiving an education on a reserve were funded at a much lower rate than those children, uh, their counterparts in the next community that is a non-Indigenous community. I think the rates were something like uh, for every one child, they were funded 6000 on the reserve and off reserve. It was around 13000 in terms of the comparison. We've talked about a few areas where there have been, has been some progress and some discussion. But for areas where, you know, that we probably, maybe as a country, we should be talking more about areas where the commission spoke to that we didn't, that we haven't really addressed yet, maybe in that sort of 26 that we haven't started yet. Are there any that are sort of the most burning, pressing 
uh, issues that we're sort of not talking about, but should be in the truth and reconciliation conversation? I think one of the issues currently is the missing and murdered Indigenous women's uh, final report. That took uh, some time to get started. And once it did, it did a number of community consultations around the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. It found a number of systemic issues at all levels in the criminal justice system around missing and murdered Indigenous women but also as well in the health system as well, when you're looking at uh, mental health addictions, but also uh, how healthcare is delivered to uh, First Nations in particular, but also uh, more specifically to uh, Indigenous uh, women and girls. In the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report, it had a number of calls to justice uh, in around uh, missing and murdered Indigenous uh, women and girls, but also other sectors, including cultural competency training for the legal system. So that includes prosecution, lawyers, judges, but also uh, other systemic things within the uh, policing systems across the country. One of the, I think, hard-pressing issues in the last uh, four years has been the Gerald Stanley acquittal in Saskatchewan, where you found uh, a young man uh, shot by a farmer uh, in what was elaborated as a self-defense issue. That case in itself, I think, woke up a lot of Canadians to see that the, the criminal justice system is, in fact, not as fair towards Indigenous peoples. And there's a number of cases across the country. And that highlights to the fact that there are systemic issues. And the Missing and Murdered Indigenous uh, Women and Girls final report positioned this systemic racism, uh, not only historically, but currently as well as as genocide. The Conservative government responded uh, by saying that the word genocide was too harsh and that it did not apply in this case. You know, the Liberal government did come out and say, yes, it is genocide. And as well as the NDP did say that, yeah, this is genocide. The reality is that no other segment of of the population in in Canada has received more government interference in terms of their day-to-day lives. And by regulating uh, Indigenous peoples in a way that it does, puts them in a very vulnerable position, including uh, the way it's treated by systemic uh, structures like uh, the policing systems, the court systems, or even the healthcare system. And, and that is why we find an important thing to look at is the recommendations coming out from the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls uh, final report. It came to light that the federal government, and you mentioned this earlier in the pod, actually, the federal government will be pursuing a judicial review of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's decision to order Ottawa to pay billions in compensation to First Nations children and their families separated by the child welfare system. That, the Truth and Reconciliation points out, uh, we're just talking about, is discriminatory. The tribunal ordered that each child be paid $40,000 in addition to parents and guardians if they were apprehended before 2006. So in responding, the prime minister indicated that he agreed with the need to pay victims and with many of the tribunal's findings, but that more time was needed for consultation and that the commission's deadline of December 10th for a plan of action was too soon given the election period. And so it's worth noting that the, the statement is slightly undercut by the fact that the Judicial Review asked for a judge to examine the need to compensate. It's also worth noting that Andrew Scheer has already said he would appeal this tribunal decision. And so 
this decision came in the middle of a campaign. Reflecting on back, maybe other conversation we've had about the liberal approach. Um, how did that bounce off of you? How did you how did you react to that news? I think uh, the liberal approach to this current issue is one that, as I was saying earlier, that the government needs to be in control of what it actually it is committing to First Nations and Métis Inuit. When you look at the, the 60 Scoop Settlement Agreement, that involved a number of uh, individuals across the country that were apprehended by various means and then adopted out to uh, non-Indigenous homes. In, in Canada, and that took place in the 60s and you know in the 70s, and it looked at you know approximately 20,000. The actual settlement itself was negotiated by the federal government, uh, and and as well as a number of lawyers who brought in the class action suit. But what was missing was the voice of the the individuals that were adopted out or fostered out through the 60s scoop. It was only after the settlement that they were brought in to talk about how the money would be uh, distributed and, uh, you know, what the commemoration process would be. And in fact, some of the provinces, including uh, Saskatchewan, who had a program called Adopt a, an Indian and Métis Program, made a, an apology this past January. So that is something that is scripted and controlled by government. And when you think about the uh, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, decision, it was something that was pursued by the First Nations Child Care Society uh, over a number of years. The settlement amounts, I think, is really the issue uh, for the federal government. And in fact, to be ordered to pay up to uh, 40000 for each child into the system. And as I said earlier, children today, especially Indigenous children, are more likely than not to be in a child welfare uh, system. So the numbers are quite high, and it's the issue, I think, is really around money and quite telling that the current government decides to appeal uh, that decision as a way of a pushback, perhaps, uh, to show uh, Canadians that yeah, the, although the Liberal government had made commitments under the sunny ways approach, but it still had to control in order to push back in such an important uh, decision by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Yeah, the the control aspect is something that just in my time in government and is really, really salient and rings really, really true. I tend to believe that at least the Liberal Party would probably like to re represent itself as a party that would agree with the need to pay victims of injustice. But the tendency when you're in government is to, yes, uh, sort of reject any authority from the outside to the greatest extent you can, who is telling sort of telling you how to shape a particular decision. It's interesting in the, in this case because it's one of those instances where sort of the nature of government, you know, if a government gets a decision that it finds to be impacting its ability to have control, it will it will push back even at the expense of this like the symbolic nature of that move. The message this party wants to send on its relationship with indigenous peoples is very much the opposite of what this decision means. And so I, that, that point about control that you raised really, really rings true to me. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the idea of control also uh, gives the optics that, in fact, it is an orchestrated relationship as well, uh, really uh, directed on, on the one side. So the promises that were made in 2015 around a new relationship where there is nothing more important than the current government is to build that new nation-to-nation -nation relationship is, in fact, choreographed, but also orchestrated to position the current government in a context of 
that it is making headway. The reality is that uh, that is not the case, and it has, I think, uh, uh, as a party, uh, damaged its own relationship with Indigenous peoples and uh, continues to struggle, and uh, you see that reflected in, in the polls currently. One of the things that when I was uh, researching in sort of prep that really stood out to me was from the testimony before the Justice Committee made several inferences that the Attorney General had interfered in several uh, civil cases. And it struck me as um, particularly problematic because, A, like the Attorney General is allowed to interfere in civil cases, not criminal cases, but civil cases, but and sort of relying on reporters in the Canadian media not to understand that distinction, I thought was not great. But the other thing is that w- when you when you looked at how uh, where in the instances that where she did it was actually under direction to try and have a new way of the government going about these civil law relationships. I mean, uh, to try the directive that came out of her Justice Department to try and settle things out of court, to try and move the relationship away from uh, a legal one to a nation to nation one. It was that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was part of what the government was elected to do, and sort of to imply that it was in any way inappropriate. It's not a thing that I knew before researching this, but it was, you know, how much it's going to take to get this power structure to give up any degree of control is really, really, really um, uh, interesting. And showed, it, it was a little episode that showed me just how deep the problem goes. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I saw that as well. When you think about over time, so uh, historically, uh, I think like when you think about truth and reconciliation, what that actually means, uh, you have to look at uh, the truth and, and what is the truth is really looking backwards in time and, and looking at an issue for what it is. Um, for for most of the time for First Nations, Métis and Inuit, control is something that they've not had in their own societies, in their own communities for a long time. And, and there were a number of government instruments that were used uh, to enforce uh, government desires to uh, change ways of, of First Nations and Métis Inuit. The policing system is one thing. Uh, the criminal justice mm-hmm. system is another. The child welfare systems uh, throughout the country is also another uh, way. Yeah, and also education, the K-12 uh, sphere in Ontario here. If you're a First Nation youth living in, in the north, more likely than not, you have to leave your community, come south uh, to get a grade 12 education. And when you find issues like Thunder Bay, where there is missing and uh, missing at youth uh, or you know a number of cho- uh, youth have died there for various reasons and, and it's really unknown and the issues of resolving the issue you have the city of Thunder Bay the police uh, service of Thunder Bay the provincial government and the federal government trying to provide solutions but not equipping the indigenous communities to deal with their own issues and their own solutions in a way that's best suited to them so, and that's all about control, and it's about orchestrating uh, power, and it's about, uh, you know, uh, making sure that status quo exists, uh, and, and it's really not about uh, reconciliation. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. I want to send a huge shout out and thank you to Arnold Blackstar for lending his expertise to this discussion, which I hope is just a first toe in the water to a more lasting, ongoing discussion on this podcast about what we can be doing better in this country and in Ontario to move towards both truth and reconciliation. I want our podcast to amplify voices speaking out about this issue. So if you have thoughts about what you just heard, 
or you're familiar with this topic and have advice, I would love to hear from you at OntarioLadMail at gmail.com or on Twitter at OntarioLad. We want to do future episodes on this, and so we also commit to learning and improving as we do that. We'll be back next Tuesday for an episode on the federal election. Uh, Very excited about that. We will be recording Monday night after watching the results roll in and giving our impressions pretty raw, and they'll be out to you on Tuesday morning. So I'm excited for that. That'll be a late night, but I hope you're excited too. Uh, Thank you so much for listening again, and we will see you next week. 